0: short Welcome to the Politics, Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, political scientist at North Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen.
1: Hey, Mike. How are you today?
0: I'm hanging in there. How about you? I'm okay. No coronavirus. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, You know, (laughs) before we get to today's show, I want to let everyone know about a very important and extremely difficult decision I've come to regarding the future of the politics, guys. When we switched over to our new format about a month ago, 97.8 percent of our listeners weren't supporters. Today, I'm happy to say that that number is down to 97.23, and that's a a positive development that's made a real difference, and we are all very grateful for all of our new supporters. Our goal is to get that non-supporter number down to 95%. In other words, we're just 5% of our listeners are supporters, meaning that's the 5% that gets that second full-length episode of the show every week, ad-free versions, and the various other things we offer. Now, my wife, who loves me dearly and is by far the best and most important part of my life. Uh, For a number of years, she's been kind of concerned about all the time I spend, you know, thinking about working on and obsessing over the politics guys. Um, And for the last few years, I've told her, you know, I promise this year, if I can't finally make it work out financially, I'll wind down the podcast. And, you know, I can't keep on putting off that promise to her and, and, Recently, I've the situation where uh, the imminent death of an immediate family member has kind of prompted me to take stock and, and really make a firm decision here. And so here it is. It's, if we aren't able to hit that 5% support level this year or, I don't know, alternately have some sort of, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos sort of benefactor swoop in and keep us going, uh, we'll be ending the politics, guys, sometime after the November elections. Now, That's absolutely not what I want, and I don't think it has to happen. In fact, you know, I'm betting there are enough people, enough of you out there listening now who value what we're doing that we will hit that 5% level and that the politics guys will continue past the November elections into uh, 2021 and, you know, beyond all that. So if you can help us out, that would be great to literally keep the show going. Uh, That would be just go to Patreon.com/politicsguys and you'll find information about you know all the benefits we offer supporters at various levels. And also, if you are one of our new supporters, especially at that ten dollar or higher level, I have sent you a message asking if you want to be part of our Slack group. I know sometimes Patreon messages get put into spam, so if you just want to email me directly, Mike at politicsguys.com, I will uh, get you hooked up into our Slack group as soon as possible. And of course, if You know, a financial issue makes it so that you can't support the show, but you would like access to that midweek show. We're happy to do that. Again, just email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you set up right away. Okay, uh, that's all for that. And Kristen, on to uh, what's obviously our top show and what I'm sure will uh, be the most of our time this week.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so surprise, surprise. uh, coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the like we said, the top story this week is of course coronavirus and um, everything that comes with it, and there's obviously a lot to discuss um so while the whole world is dealing with this uh, what is now officially a global pandemic which is a scary thought um Americans are following all layers of government just to see how our country will weather this somewhat unprecedented storm because there are a lot of elements about this that we've just really never had to deal with um, as a nation or real really all over the world. Um, President Trump addressed the nation twice this week. Um, and of course, we're going to focus more on the, the latest address, uh, which was yesterday, Friday. He gave a press conference. And so I jotted down some of the highlights of the press conference um, in case you didn't see that. Um, so President Trump invoked the Stafford Act to declare a national emergency. And I'm sure we'll talk all about that. I happen to know a lot about the Stafford Act because I live in Florida and we've had our fair share of hurricanes. Yeah so we could talk about that. Um, he stood alongside a bevy of corporate CEOs and announced partnerships to roll out testing, mobile testing, um, and one CEO called that an all-hands-on-deck scenario. Um, and he also announced the waiving of interest on federally held student loans until further notice, which... Uh, Some people were happy about. And he also announced um, large oil purchases for the U.S. Strategic Oil Reserve, which I thought was important. Of course, there were other key details and and highlights and takeaways, and we're going to unpack those too. And um, just as sort of an update, um, very, very, very early this morning um, on Saturday today, Congress voted overwhelmingly to pass the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And that vote was a 363 to 40. Um, it garnered some serious bipartisan support and it also had pledged support from president Trump, um, as of last night. So that's important too. And we're going to discuss that. And I guess, uh, that's, that's all I have. That's the latest. And, and this is of course changing minute by minute, hour by hour. So I'm sure some of these stories may even be irrelevant <laughs> in a few hours because this situation is very fluid.
0: That's, that's for sure. Um, you know, I, I'll start. I guess I'll start, Kristen, with the positive. I think obviously sure. it's it's a very positive thing to see this. Uh, let the House pass this legislation, and it's a, it's a near certainty that the Senate will pass it. Will pass it next week when they get back into session, and that's you know. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. Certainly, I I don't think you know, hardly anyone has any objection to the things that are in there. That are especially, I think, on the testing part of things uh, right right also you know i i think that uh it, it seems like we are finally kind of spinning up the deal with this now i, I think almost anyone would say that the response has been much later than we would have liked and uh you know that that to me is the that to me is the negative certainly and i want to say i really hope that we're doing the show in say Three months, and and I say, you know what, I was completely wrong about what I thought about coronavirus. Uh, President Trump was completely right, and I'm happy to say that. And I I think we should all hope that President Trump's what I consider incredibly optimistic view of this is right. And that uh, the deaths are, are are super low, and the dislocations are you know the health consequences are super low, and and I don't care if that means that that makes him much more likely to win in November. that to me that is a, that, that is a, a non a non-issue. But having said that, I am deeply I, I didn't think I could be more deeply disappointed in the president uh, than things happen, and then all of a sudden I say, "Well, yeah, I, I am you know, when he said, I don't take responsibility at all. That's a direct quote. Um, And him saying things like, uh, I think it'll go very quickly. It'll go away in two months. We have 32 deaths at this point, which is, of course, you know, true, but that takes out a very important point of context. And relative to other countries, we have very few cases. Again, true, but that's because, of course, we don't have the testing and it's just early days here. And then we're very much ahead of everything. And all of those comments that we've seen from the president over the course of really the, the past few weeks paint a picture to people of this, you know, not being too so It's like the flu, but a little bit worse, essentially. Nothing to worry about, you know. And, and, and so, and what I don't, I get why the political imperative for doing that. He certainly hopes that that's true. And if it is, it looks like he cautioned calm and, and, and that sort of thing in a time where, you know, everyone was freaking out based on the best evidence we have that's, that his scenario is extraordinarily unlikely to play out and given that when all of a sudden we start seeing the sort of deaths that i think you know even the optimistic experts expect which far surpass what we've seen in any flu season certainly i mean you know i did some math and i've and i've looked at some uh, projections from cdc models and i think an insanely optimistic view would have us at 150,000 deaths from this day, which is, which is huge. And when that starts to happen, my concern is that there's going to be even more panic. We already see people panic. And, and so I feel it's been incredibly irresponsible of the president to not to try to urge calm, but to say, you know, it's likely to get a lot worse before it gets better, but it will get better. And I think that's the message. That the president should have gone with. And I'm just so crushingly disappointed that saner heads didn't prevail and that that the people around President Trump didn't urge him to say that sort of thing. And so I see this as just a colossal failure of leadership. And it just it just it's pretty devastating to me.
1: <laughs> well, I um, you know, the 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 past few weeks have been a lot to take in and yeah. I I have to sort of I guess qualify what I'm about to say by saying that I'm as I'm a native South Floridian. I live in South Florida now. Um, and so the idea, it's, it's funny because all of this this um, preparedness and this worry and this panic and frenzy <clears throat> that I'm seeing people running around yesterday, I, I went to Walgreens and they were instituting a, a one pack of toilet paper, one roll of paper towels roll because yeah. people were just running around grabbing stuff off the shelves. It reminds me of what happens before a hurricane. And I'm sure anybody who lives in an area of the country that's hit hard by a natural disaster, for example, has, has dealt with something similar, um, very similar circumstances circumstances in many ways but in some ways um these aren't similar cir- circumstances i mean sure we've dealt with pandemic issues before and and um you know we had we've had west nile virus we've had h1n1 we've had swine flu bird flu i mean we you know this is these are all part of our you know recent memory to, to i guess to to put it as bluntly as possible and i think that um it was funny because wednesday i listened to president trump's address and um I, I, I personally, I, I've made no secret about the fact that, you know, I, I criticize him when he deserves criticism. I didn't like his tone. Um, I also thought that he wasn't taking it as seriously as possible. I stepped away on Wednesday and I thought to myself, well, I think there were some good things about this speech. I thought the the travel ban to Europe was probably a smart idea considering it seemed like the first time that he was actually starting to take something seriously. And I I stepped away and I thought, well, why is that? And I started looking at, you know, what was going on in my workplace and in my community amongst my friends. And the truth is that none of us were really taking it seriously. And I, and I'm including myself in that. I mean, even though you saw these dire statistics coming in and these, you know, projections, some of them were good, some of them were, were, were terrible. Um, You know, I I think there's, you know, if if you're a relatively healthy American person, um, you're you're probably thinking, well, my chances of getting it are pretty low. And that was midweek. But like I said, this situation is fluid. um, And I started thinking about, um, you know, misinformation coming from China, China. The Chinese government worked very hard to create as hazy as possible a scenario for the rest of the world, just how bad this really was there. And things have turned out that they're probably worse than we even know at this point. So I, I do think as a country, we were unprepared. I think that the blame goes in a lot of directions I think it goes towards China for providing us a lot of uh, bad information um, for obvious reasons you know they're a communist uh, country they they're trying to sort of lock all the doors and, and keep things contained I also think you know and th- I, this is certainly not an excuse but for political reasons I think probably to avoid things like panic and these you know, it's, a, it's an election year they are very very high stakes um, I think it's easy when you're you know when when you're not in charge to point fingers at the person in charge and say, this is all your fault, you've done things incorrectly. I do think he deserves some of the credit, or some of the, uh, I should say, criticism, not credit, some of the criticism that that you've given him. Um, I don't think he took it as seriously as he should have. Of course, I think some of that's hindsight now. But at the time, I remember thinking, "When when is he going to take this seriously? Um, so, you know, I, I do get I do get a lot of your points. Um, I think yesterday the the press conference uh, was better. I thought the tone was better. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about all the details there. But yeah, I mean, I think there are just a lot of things in play. I'm not even really sure how seriously I'm, I'm taking it at this point. It, uh, in the last week, I've looked at my husband about four times and I've said, should we be taking this more seriously? And y- yesterday was really the first time, you know, when I was walking around Walgreens there to buy allergy medicine, not even there to buy supplies. I was looking around saying, okay, maybe things aren't what I thought they were, you know? So um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this really is like, you know, was said yesterday at the press conference. This really is an all hands on deck scenario. I'm glad that it's moving in that direction. I I hope I continue to see it move in that direction.
0: Yeah. And and I I think it will as the number of uh, uh, confirmed cases and infection or confirmed cases and deaths, uh, you know, uh, goes up. I mean, I I compared Donald Trump's response to, say, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany's response, who said, you know, okay. uh, you know, she said, well, the, the virus is out there and there's no population immunity because it's a new thing and, and there's no real therapy for it. And so she said, you know, 60, 70 percent of the population will be infected at some point. And um, you know, other, other estimates that we've seen from experts are, you know, uh, I think the lowest Really I've seen as well, maybe 20% or 40%. I
1: saw or, 20%. That, that's and, probably the lowest
0: and I've you know, seen, you too. Just just do some basic math. If we get a 10% infection rate and the death rate isn't even 1%, but 0.5%, which is like half of what we kind of seen or what a lot of people think, even though kind of that's a that's a funny number. I mean, the number I've seen a lot is three point four percent, but that's because of you know that uh, I think the lack of people who were who had confirmed cases. But even if we assume 0.5%, which is much lower, that's 165 or 163,000 deaths in the United States. And if we assume something like a 20% infection rate and a 1% death rate, that's 654,000 people dead, and that would be equivalent to the 1918 flu pandemic, where 675,000 mm-hmm. people died. So, uh, so yeah, I've been taking this seriously certainly for for a, for a while now, and. Uh, I think anyone who just starts doing the math and and listening to the real experts as opposed to the president uh, is now taking this seriously. As for the uh, travel restrictions, I give the president credit for the China travel restriction early on. That was a smart move. And it bought us some time that we didn't really use all that effectively, unfortunately. The Europe one, it seems the consensus of experts was that was really too late to have much of an effect at all, though I can understand the urge to kind of shut down and close borders. That's obviously something the president is, you know, fairly comfortable with, uh, you know. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah. se- seriously, his yeah. his response is these are foreign threats and foreign viruses <clears> and these things that are infecting our country, whether it's, you know, literal infections or, you know, foreign people, basically. So, I mean, that just fits with the whole kind of mindset, I think. So I, I understand doing that, of course. And in terms of the you know the economic response that we've seen earlier from the federal reserve obviously this isn't fundamentally an economic problem and i think the thing that really is going to calm the the public and the markets is honesty about where we're at and where we're mm-hmm. likely to be uh, which uh, which we haven't seen from the administration i don't think but the other thing that we have started to see is putting major resources into containment treatment and vaccine development and we we have seen that and of course i'm i'm very happy about uh about that and you know the the plan congress passed on on or the house passed on friday there's just a lot good in there obviously the food aid the expanded access to free testing which to me is is the main thing so we can get a handle on this right um and and the other issue i think is uh, the sick leave issue and that that's a larger issue and there that's quite contentious sort of thing yeah. because what congressional democrats wanted was uh not just the 14 paid uh sick day uh uh provision that passed but to make that permanent for all national emergencies like this and and to me i think that's uh you know that's a, that's a wise type of thing so we have this in place when the next one of these things happens, because it will happen. I mean, you know, uh, uh, epidemiologists and virologists and people like that have been saying for decades now that this is is something we should expect, you know. Uh, And so I think it's wise to have something like that in place so people don't panic. And so early on, when we don't even know what we're dealing with, where people say, well, you know, I, I have, uh, this goes into a larger point about just general paid sick leave, right? But uh, mm-hmm. And so I know this is an issue that's interested you uh, a lot. And so I was just kind of getting, I wonder about your thoughts on the, the paid sick leave issue.
1: Well, it's—I uh, it, I was telling you earlier this week that this is one thing that I've followed. And it's one thing that um, I actually side with a lot of Democrats on. And it's actually something I've changed my mind about um, over the years um, just because of personal circumstances. So, you know, like, like you mentioned, and I, and I just wanted to, to, uh, I guess, talk about this for a second too, in terms of this, you know, being an economic problem or not being an economic problem, I think there's no denying that this is a huge economic problem. I mean, essentially, there are businesses that are going to be shut down. I was comforted by the, you know, the the Dow Jones, the, the rally that happened yesterday while President Trump was speaking. He was invoking um, and, and sort of talking about um, partnerships with these private corporations. I was I was comforted by that. But we lost so much, um, economically this, this week. And so to see that was, was comforting. But again, this is just in every sense of the word, this is such a wild roller coaster ride. And none of us know how this is going to turn out economically, um, in terms of, you know, human toll, um, in terms of, you know, what's going to come of this regarding our healthcare system, it's going to be wild. Um, but in terms of sick leave, and I think this factors into all of that, um, I used to have a, a much more hardline approach to um, paid sick leave, and I and I think um, I think that there are some effective arguments to be made in terms of you know the U.S. workforce and the interests of companies and organizations, um, a private public, what have you. I think that their interests are are very well represented, however, and um, you know uh, one of the things that's come up since. You know, I am a working mother um, is this issue of paid sick leave for parents um, if their children get sick or if they have to stay home for some reason. And of course, that's and and I I think I've talked about this with you, but that's actually um, that was a big reason why I quit my last job. (laughs) was because I had an employer, um, you know, obviously there there's nothing in place to to um to force employers to, you know, give a certain amount of paid sick leave or the the, the, the sick leave or parental leave whatever it is that is that should be required of parents, um, especially working parents um, who don't work in the home. And so, um, you know, this is something that's kind of come into the forefront for me. Um, Obviously, now I I work for a company that is much more understanding, and that that was a a calculated move on my part. Um, But, you know, I I think it's something that's very, very important. I've I've been happy with, um, uh, there's been a sort of a renewed interest in some circles on the right, and I consider myself a, as part of one of those circles. Um, especially you know you have Ivanka Trump who's sort of championing, um, the working the the interests of the working parent. Um, and and I think that that's important. I do wish though, and I, and I want to sort of make a plea to a lot of my Republican colleagues and friends. I wish that we would take this issue more seriously. Yeah. Um, because yes, I think it's it's important to to look at the interests of different workplaces and organizations and companies, but you know if we're a party of people who care about the family and the family structure and holding the family together, strong family, then I think we probably need to rethink our, our strategy. And I was happy to see that, that this issue has come up. And of course, there are always these, these, you know, secondary issues that come up whenever we're dealing with a national crisis such as this one. But, um, I, you know, I was happy to see this one thrust into the, into the limelight. Once again, I think it needs to be there. And I think it's something that we do need to make permanent 14 days of, of paid sick leave. Um, and there are again issues that that spin from that. Maternity leave is a big one. Paternity leave, you know, there are so many different issues that come along with that. So I do think it's time for us as a country and, and certainly as a party to to rethink our our strategy on this one. I think this is kind of a losing issue for us personally.
0: Yeah, and I, and I certainly agree. If you take a look around the country and and around the world, other other yeah, rich countries, yeah. the standard for OECD countries is for short-term illnesses is is around 5 days and uh, actually in the 12 states that have paid sick leave around 5 days or 40 hours a year maximum is uh is uh, the pretty standard uh mandated uh mandated minimum on that and that you know that that is certainly not nothing but if you think about times when say you know you or someone has had the flu or something like that that's kind of like a mm-hmm. bear minimum to get you by with something like that certainly and and I think it can be done in a way that you know well one of the nice things about a federal mandate is that it doesn't it, it levels the playing field meaning that if you if you make it a federal law And you also carve out reasonable exemptions for small businesses of 50 or Mm under is oftentimes the standard. And also maybe couple that with some tax incentives, uh, temporary or permanent, to kind of help businesses adjust to that change or pay for that. Then I think it's actually a much better situation, not just for obviously the keeping families together part. And that's certainly very important in a conservative priority. But when we're dealing with things like Pandemics, or like even you know the flu, which right last year right, killed right. uh, thirty four thousand people, and the year before, the year before that, believe it or not, killed I I want to say like sixty something thousand. In yeah, 2000. it was almost double, I yeah. think. And so mm-hmm. w- when you think about that, and how many people are so reluctant to stay away from work because they will lose, you know, they'll yeah. lose money, and you know, also. A lot of a lot of folks with kids, you know, they use their sick leave when their kids are sick, and then they're just sort of stuck when they're yep. sick, you know. And so that would that would help a lot. Now, the other part of this, of course, is sort of our our, our culture, and you know, there's just a the culture, of course, is far stronger than politics, and we have this cultural attitude oftentimes of just kind of sucking it up and going to work when we're sick, and and I'm hoping that maybe the one good thing that might come out of this at least for a little period of time is you know for people to uh for people to say well you know that's that's not uh, a sign of being tough and, and and impressive and all that but that's a sign of being irresponsible i mean there've been some meetings at my work this week and you know i i i sent back an email saying you know what i you can i i respect your decision and you can call this meeting but i, I don't feel this is essential and i'm not going to go yeah. because i feel it would be irresponsible of me to go and because, and I think more people need to do that sort of thing. And, and, you know, because that's the sort of culture is far more powerful than politics. And I think we need both of them working together. And a lot of those sort of things that, you know, the president called common sense. I mean, if you're guys, guys, you know what I'm talking about. If you go into the bathroom, you see how guys <laughs> wash their hands. If they do, it's three seconds and boom, you're done. Right. I mean, oh, I
1: have two sons. It's so, sometimes less than three. Right. seconds. So, you
0: know what I'm talking about, you know? so. These sort of cultural changes are the things that are really going to to change it, not just for these every once in a while horrendous things, but for something like seasonal flu, which is just a which is just a horrific killer. And and you know it's not just the deaths; it's the people who are uh, who are uh, harmed. And you know, talking about if you're put on a respirator, it's not like oh you're just hunky dory after that or something like that. This is like some real hardship to a lot of people, and not just in this awful case here, but every year. And so. I really hope that one thing that comes out of this is maybe as a culture, we start saying to people, hey, you know, wash your hands. What the hell's wrong with you? Or why are you at work? Go home. That's not cool. That's stupid. And obviously having something like paid sick leave will be a big factor in that, certainly
1: right and and you know uh, there's a a saying i've i've heard and i've repeated often that politics is sort of downstream yeah. from culture yeah. i mean with with these big cultural shifts and certainly in the last 8 to you know 15 years we've experienced some tremendous cultural shifts um just in our consciousness as a, as a country um but this is of course going to be another cultural shift to this, the the coronavirus and and what it's done, how it's made us think of things like this. And in some ways it's going to be good. And in some ways it's going to be very, very bad. I mean, there, there will be, there will be a a larger toll that will be taken. Um, But I'm hoping that this is kind of a silver lining, like you said, is that we, it, it forces us to look at this. Um, You know, another, another angle that I was thinking about yesterday, um, I have a lot of friends who are in the medical field, um, whether they're doctors, nurses, nurse assistants, um, you know, or just hospital administrators, people who work in doctor's offices. And, you know, um, I have a very good friend who's a doctor, and um, she was just made the coronavirus lead at her primary practice. Um, which is a, you know, it's 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 kind of an honor because she's, in, you know, incredibly responsible. She knows she's kind of been my conduit for information about coronavirus, especially when I'm trying to explain it to my family. Um, but you know, she, I was talking to her last night, and um, she, you know, she was saying that um, you know, she, just that it's, you know, it's 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 something that's very very nerve wracking because she doesn't know what to expect. And I started thinking about it, and I I actually think that something we're not talking about with all of this idea of paid sick leave and going home working from home and companies adjusting to that um is the idea that we need to be able to give the medical community a f- like a fighting chance yeah. with yeah. all of this because we do you know doctors are in many especially many areas of the country doctors you know seem to gravitate towards these urban centers and in these more rural locations and suburban locations they're in short supply um there are a lot of people throughout the country who are going to be affected by this who don't live you know, in close proximity to a hospital and yeah. maybe can't go get tested right away. Even if we are, you know, it sounds like we're going to be rolling out more testing and mobile testing. And, and this is great. You know, this is a great announcement, but some of these people aren't going to be affected by that. It just yeah. It is what it is. And I, I feel like those people, those nurses, those doctors, the people within the medical community are going to be on the front lines and they there, you know, there's no vaccination for, for coronavirus. We don't know much about the disease yet. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it, um, it's something that, that's going to affect them. It's going to affect their families. My, one of my closest friends, her husband, is an ER doctor. And he's, you know, constantly saying, um, you know, when he when he comes home from work, he actually segregates himself. They have three kids. He segregates himself from the kids. He changes like three times. He takes multiple showers. I mean, we have to be able to give these people a fighting chance because they're the front lines. But also, like I said, they're in short supply. And and if they fall, if they go down and they are catching coronavirus and they're not healthy, you know, if they're being overworked because you know, companies aren't understanding that this is serious. They're making their employees come to work. They're getting their family sick. They're going to be overrun. And, um, and I, I really wish that, that there was more, I guess, you know, it's, it, it hits close to home. Cause I know so many, I'm not a member of the medical community, but I know so many and I see what they're going through and it's, it's downright frightening. And so, you know, I just, I really wish I wanted to bring that up today because I really wish that we were talking about that more. Yeah.
0: And I think to put that in an even more specific perspective, we have around 925,000 staffed hospital beds in the United States. And estimates of people who may require treatment for coronavirus are from, I've seen from uh, like 2.4 million to 24 million. Uh, And so that's why that whole idea of, you know, staying home and flattening the curve, even if, you know, 30, 40% of us get it as long as we get it over the course of, you know, uh, a year or so, as opposed to a couple of months, that that's hugely important. And, and you know, that also gets an issue of public health spending, right? We, we yeah. uh, spending on uh, aid to also federal aid to state and local uh, public health uh, spending, it needs to be increased a lot because as you said, these are the frontline people that can be the most effective. And what we know is that you can't just ramp that up from nothing or next to nothing after there's a threat. That infrastructure has to be in place. And it's not like this is just some incredible, impossible thing to do. Uh, One panel uh, of of experts on this recently concluded that public health agencies in the U.S. need around $4.5 billion more to be able to reasonably respond to public health threats. And that's not that's really a drop in the bucket in terms of federal aid, you know, at the federal budget, and and also it's a it's a cost savings. There's one study I saw that found that one dollar in the sort of preparedness is worth fifteen dollars in terms of mitigation cost. So that's a that's a big deal. But of course, the problem here is that the political incentives go the other way. In in policy discussions, sometimes we talk about a uh, fire alarm versus police patrol oversight, meaning that yeah you know if you the fire alarms of course you respond to a crisis the police patrols you're constantly there waiting for something to to respond to it and and what we know about the political incentives is that if you prepare beforehand well that, those are funds that you almost never need and then when they are needed some future administration is probably going to get credit for responding well so there's very little political upside for setting aside funding and money for things that almost never happen. And so especially when we're talking about state and local governments that are so incredibly crunched, well, they're not going to put away as much as they would like to for contingencies just because they can't afford to do that. And that's where the federal government needs to step in. And so what I hope we will see in the wake of this, once we're done dealing with the immediate crisis, is uh, putting our state and local public health uh, officials and, and agencies on an, a very sound and continuous financial footing so that when the next one of these things happens which it absolutely will and it might not be one or three percent fatality it could be you know it could be a lot worse that we are ready for it and we don't see the kind of you know, a day late and a dollar short type of response that we've seen here that almost certainly is going to mean a lot more people are going to get sick and a lot more people are going to die.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I when you were talking, I couldn't help but think about the fact that, you know, just in terms of, our political consciousness, we have such a short memory, you know, and, and I, I, I think about this all the time. I mean, we, we, we joke about hearing a story on the news and then the next day it's gone. And, you know, then we're all sort of left looking at each other saying, well, you know, what happened to this story? What happened to this guy? What happened to this? You know, so I, I, my hope, you know, going forward with this, um, is that we don't, you know, a a situation like this is sort of a, a, one of those pivotal moments in terms of policy, not even politics, but just in terms of policy, that moving forward, we see the importance of that fire alarm versus police patrol, you know, analogy that that you gave. Of course, those institutions and and those coffers are are the first that are pulled and the first that are used when some other resources are are depleted in some fashion. I've heard people talk about, you know, um, you know, we're, we're mentioned earlier, this, you the fact that the president invoked the Stafford Act, and which, of course, um, enables FEMA to, to do what they're supposed to do. And I've heard people, both Republicans and Democrats, talk about how FEMA needs to be abolished. And, you know, of, of course, those of us who have had to rely on FEMA for, for situations um, that, you know, that are going on in our state, hurricanes here in Florida, floods, you know, any, any sort of situation where FEMA... Um, is involved, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at this and saying, hey, wait a minute, this, yeah. this, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's one of these situations where an agency from time to time isn't effectively run, but it, it still needs the funding. It still needs to exist because yeah. without FEMA, I mean, FEMA is going to be directly responsible. Um, and of course, the National Guard the National Guard has been rolled out in, I think, six states. Uh, now, this is, of course, yesterday's news. It could have changed overnight, but I think it, they were rolled out in six states to help the governors in those states deal with this you know, health crisis. Um, so, you know, these are the people, again, with the, along with the medical community that are on the front lines and FEMA needs to exist. The National Guard needs to exist you know these 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 organizations um need to exist, and um you know they I think that these large private companies that have the the means to to help again all hands on deck, we all need to be working together um and it's it It reminds me in some ways of what happened after 9/11, um, where people really did come together, and they saw this as sort of this crisis moment, and that you know the culture would change, and therefore politics would change, and it, and they did, um, and it changed the way a lot of us looked at the world, and and certainly at, at government, um, and and government responses. So you know, Hurricane Katrina was another one. I remember Hurricane Andrew way back in the day. That was another one. So you know, the I when I hear people you know roll their eyes at, at FEMA, oh, why does FEMA exist? Why do these agencies exist? Well, they exist for a reason and um you know i'm not saying we should be giving them all the power but they need to be enabled and they need to be acting together and so again my hope for the future is that we see the importance of public health funding um it, this preventative action and that we don't pull from those coffers when yeah. <laughs> when you know another agency seems to be um in the red and um you know that that we at least take something from this this is this is like kind of New territory for us dealing with a pandemic like this um, and and a response like this Um, and and such a drastically different response, somewhere between panic and and utter calm. And so, you know, I'm hoping this creates a a shift in, in a positive direction, whatever can be positive from this point forward.
0: Yeah, and I think this is where I agree with a lot of traditional conservatives in that, uh, that sort of federalism view that this is this is where the states and the local uh, and sometimes city health agencies yeah. that are closest to the people in the situations, they're the ones that need to be empowered. So, I mean, certainly it's it's incredibly important to have FEMA, but what I would like to see is a lot more be focused, have the main focus be on those local responders and, and local and state agencies because that's how we're going to contain these things uh and, and minimize the damage because once we get to the point of it being a national emergency that's that's kind of almost not so much too late but certainly well past the point where we want we want it to be able to have a situation where if there's an outbreak in some place like Washington state that state and those county and, and city health agencies are just on the job, totally on top of it, have all the resources they need. And that's just not the case in a lot of places. And we can do something about that for not a lot of money. And it, I, I really hope we will, though. I'm, I'm uh, Well, we'll see what happens, certainly. You know, the other issue, you mentioned uh, all hands on deck and the private sector sort of thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, one of the parts of the uh, – of the announcement that the president made was about working with uh, a Google among other folks to, uh, I knew you
1: were going to bring that up.
0: Well, you know, this is something some conservatives (laughs) brought up saying that, Oh, this is a great way to give Google more of our personal data. And this is, you know, a lot of folks on the left say, this is what happens when we outsource or just, we underdevelop a lot of critical government functions because there's no core government function more important than, The the protecting the health and livelihood of Americans, that that is the core function of government. And when we are underprepared for that and we have to say, well, Quest uh, Diagnostics, uh, let's uh," Mm -hmm. I mean, Quest Diagnostics doesn't have the market. There's no good market incentive to have that capacity. I mean, where's the profit in it? And so. These are the things that we need to pre- prepare for beforehand, so we're not saying, "Well, gee, I hope Quest and Google can help us out." Because, of course, now in the situation, I certainly do hope that. But this is where we need to think about having a, a ready uh, government, aid, government agencies who don't have to worry about the market to make sure that when there are crises like this, we at least can get things up to a level to minimize the damage as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, I, um, I it, it. I knew that you were going to bring that up and I think it's an important, an important issue. And, and it, I think I mentioned to you earlier this week that another thing that, that this has all gotten me sort of gotten the gears turning in my brain about is our relationship between government and technology. Yeah, And, um, it, you know, this is, so this is another area where I break from some conservatives. I I think that there are, that there are a lot of conservatives, especially younger millennial conservatives, um, people who are a bit more like me, maybe lean, um, you know, a, a little bit, um, i guess i guess they're they're more tech friendly I work in tech so obviously i have a i have a good a good sure, feelings about yeah. technology and i have concerns um you know i have sort of at at my core i have some you know libertarian blood i guess and i i have some concerns with things like data and um you know, making data public and giving a large company like Google more data, health data, you know, and, and the idea of breaching privacy and, and things like that. Um, but overall, this is an area where I tend to break with some of the more classically conservative people in my party, um, in terms of, um, the government having a healthy relationship with technology. Um, I think it's something that Trump has embraced a little more than previous Republican presidents. Again, I, you know, I think we've had such a boom in, in the tech industry over the last 20 years. I think it was impossible to avoid. But also, you know, he is he is a businessman and I think he he sees the importance. He sees the value. Obviously, he sees the value of Twitter. Right. You can agree with that. Right. Mike? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and I uh, in one area I give Obama a lot of credit in um, is the idea that he wa- he had a very healthy relationship with technology. I think that um, you know he forged a lot of relationships again, and had a lot to do with timing. Um, but he forged a lot of relationships with these large companies. So this—and this is another policy issue that's coming to the forefront—is you know moving forward, what will be our relationship with these large tech companies with Silicon Valley? Um, and of course, we're we're talking about far beyond uh, the idea of testing. I mean we're, we're talking about rolling out mobile testing sites for, for coronavirus. And certainly in the future, we, you know, if, if this were to, were to happen, I hope it does. Um, You know, I, I think this is an important, an important step in terms of like preparing for things, like you mentioned, the flu season, you know, there will be another flu season. It comes every year. Um, Just, you know, the the idea that um, that we need to sort of bridge that gap, there seems to be this reluctance on the right with adopting technology and funding technology and partnering with with private companies, which kind of goes against, um, you know, a lot of Republican ideals. But um, in terms of technology, we tend to, to fear it. Um, and i and i don't think it's something to be feared i i I was actually very happy to see these CEOs up there with with President Trump um, sort of pledging to work on this together. Um, I think it's a step in the right direction, like you said, probably a little too late. We probably needed to have bridged this gap a long time ago but you know again my my one concern moving forward w- would be data um you know where you know, if we're going to be giving data i know um i downloaded an app on my phone um that, tracking the coronavirus and I, you know, there's, it's almost like a little, uh, it's like Google Maps for coronavirus. That's the only way I can describe it. There are little dots all over my county and all over my state where people have tested and, you know, what stage of the testing they're in. And I was looking at it and I said, okay, well, this is this is good and this is helpful, but this is, you know, how much deeper are we going to get with this? Are we going to start revealing information? Is there going to be more information? As of right now, these people are Fairly anonymous, but you know that's my fear moving forward is is the issue of privacy. But you know, I I'm I'm glad that we've started this process because there needs to be a healthy balance between you know having too health, too robust a relationship between government and technology and then not embracing it at all. And so I'm I was happy to see that yesterday.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure we will be talking a lot more, obviously, about this in in the weeks to come. Hopefully, with some good news. And I think, like like I said, like everyone. Uh, I I hope that President Trump is absolutely right about his optimistic scenario. And let's just all, you know, hope and pray that that is that is the case. Now, uh, obviously, we've taken up a lot of uh, understandably a lot of time on this story. Before we get to I think we have a time at least briefly to talk about because the the Democratic presidential race. But before we do that, I just want to thank our sponsor for today. And that is Empower. And I've talked about Empower before because, you know, Anyone, everyone really can use some extra savings because you never know when you might need some extra money. And it's awfully nice to have around, certainly during tough times. And Empower is here to help people save more money, maybe than you even thought you possibly could. And here's how it works. You just put in a weekly savings target, then Empower studies your income and your spending and then automatically moves the correct amount of money into your savings account where you know, you're going to be less likely to spend it. They also have budgeting for people who hate budgeting and uh, they give you reports that have actionable spending insights and they personally tailor smart savings recommendations for your situation. They can also even negotiate on your behalf to lower your bills, which is great. And, and finally, Empower gives you real real life human being coaching for financial questions and high interest FDIC insured checking with no minimums. So if you want to save more money than you have in the past, uh, who doesn't download Empower. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the app store or play store. I have and over 650,000 other people have as well. Politics guys listeners, you get $5 when you use offer code politics guys and reach your savings goal visit empower.me/politics guys for more details. Okay, Kristen, you know there, there there still is a presidential race going on, uh <laughs> though it seems like for the most part it's kind of sewn up on on the democratic side. It's been kind of uh, an awfully big turnabout, huh, in the last few weeks.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny because during an election year, you, you never, you know, a a year ago, if you had told me that another story would eclipse an election story on during an election year, I would have said no way. But, you know, we still have this going on and, um, it seems pretty sewn up for, for Joe Biden, um, I I, uh, I, 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 w- I was actually wondering if we were even going to be able to get to this story today, but it still is important. Um, we have the Democratic Party and and obviously the forecast. We're heading towards November and, you know, we haven't forgotten about that. But, you know, I, I think as the as the primaries move on, I think it becomes more and more clear, you know, like you said, this is sewn up. Um, so, you know, we had kind of jotted down some things we wanted to talk about um, what's going on on the left, um, how moderate a candidate Joe Biden actually is, which forced me to think about that a little bit. I hadn't thought about that in a while. Um, and a, a possible never Joe movement. That I, that's the first time I saw that was this week, the idea of a never Joe movement that might be, may or may not be forming and picking up steam on the left. Um, and of course, how Bernie Sanders factors into all of this. I, you know, a lot of people expected him to drop this week and he didn't, he vowed to stay in. So, you know, that remains to be seen. And of course our thoughts on how this may play out um, possible vice presidential picks uh, you know, there's, there's still a lot to discuss with this and, yeah. and a lot of unknowns again. So well,
0: why don't we, yeah. why don't we do this? We are, we are, we're, we're kind of pushing, well, we'll we, we probably won't get a chance to do all that, but what we can yeah. do is maybe focus on at least one thing and then kind of have the rest spill over into our midweek uh, Patreon supporters Perfect. show. But to me, it seems like, uh, at least if you're okay with it, the one thing I kind of want to talk about is how moderate Joe Biden is. Yeah, and I, and I, let's I have some, talk about that. Okay, great. <laughs> because if you take a look at Joe Biden's campaign platform, he is easily the most progressive Democratic uh, presumptive nom- nominee, I guess we can say at this point, that we've seen in at least half a century, or or possibly ever, depending on how you want to to measure it. You know, I mean, he supports a public option for health care, a fifteen dollar mm-hmm. minimum wage. He supports banning state right to work laws and a nearly two trillion dollar climate change plan. That, yeah, green the Green New Deal. You know, well, yeah, he does. No, he doesn't support the Green New Deal. I want to be clear on that. But he supports putting a lot of money in the, into. Combating climate change, the Green New Deal is definitely far more of an AOC progressive thing. But, but there's no I, there's no question in my mind that if you take his platform as what he intends to try to do, there's no question it's far more progressive than Barack Obama, far more progressive certainly than Bill Clinton. You know, and so going back, maybe you could make a case that well, in some ways, uh, LBJ was you know more progressive on some issues, you know certainly, but you have to go back pretty far and depending again depending on how you look at it, you could say this is the most progressive democratic candidate we've we 've seen you know basically in our lifetimes at least so would you would you agree with that
1: yeah and and just to to go back to the green new deal I, my belief was that he had sort of embraced it, although he hadn 't officially endorsed it um the green new deal on the campaign trail. Um, but you know, I guess, you know, um, when I think of Joe Biden, I don't think of a progressive, um, candidate. And I, and I think a lot of that is because he has shifted, um, in his time in, in public office and certainly in the public eye. So the Joe Biden of 2008 is certainly not the Joe Biden of 2020. And again, I think this goes back to, um, the idea of culture, you know politics being downstream from culture, his party has shifted, and the the center of uh the democratic party has shifted and moved to the left um, and I think a lot of that you know has happened over the last few years in response to trump and you have these very um uh these very polarizing figures on the left that a lot of times set the you know make a lot of these the policy they're essentially bringing about a sea change in the party, people like AOC and yeah. Ilhan Omar. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways it's forced people who are these, you know, um, career politicians like, like Joe Biden to step back and evaluate whether or not, you know, he can capture that vote, that sort of, um, uh, growing progressive voice in the democratic party, whether or not he can capture that vote. And so he has shifted to the left, um, on a lot of issues, um, with the minimum wage. I think about um, the public health option. I think about um, a lot of the the climate change issues that, that he's discussed. He is by far the most progressive candidate. But again, there seems to be a disconnect um, in, in the Democratic community. And I've talked to a lot of Democrats who I think feel the disconnect. And they say, yeah. um, you know, well, wait a minute, you know, jo- Joe Biden before this is what he did and he you know for eight years he championed whatever um you know president obama did and president obama was you know by in in this sense a far less progressive uh president um and and he and he was i mean he was and and as he should have been his his biggest his biggest fan and spokesperson they were very close and so to see him come out and and um And make some of the claims he's making and to tout some of the policy issues he's touting. I I think there are Democrats, one in particular, I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. She was saying that she felt like it seemed disingenuous. But again, I think this is just what politicians do. You know, they, like I said, politics flow downstream from culture. And as the culture shifts, he has to shift. He has no choice. He has to deal with the, you know, the Bernie bros.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, let me just say on the, to be clear. Uh, when I and I, if I don't clarify this, I'm going to get some understandably some some pushback from a lot I'm of sure people. I'm sure I will too. Well, uh, on the specifically on the Green New Deal thing. Now, uh, Joe Biden released his own climate plan that is very aggressive. Some people called it a mini Green New Deal. But what what, yeah. what he doesn't agree with are what I would consider the most sort of radical or progressive, if you want, elements of the Green New Deal that didn't necessarily have a lot to do with energy per se, but like guaranteeing jobs and things like that. And also a very important distinction is Joe Biden believes that nuclear power needs to be part of at least a near-term solution. And of course, yeah. to a lot of Green New Deal folks, that's just a- a- anathema. And so I wanted to clarify what I was what I meant by that. So I am certainly not saying that Joe Biden's climate plan, in fact, part of my argument about how progressive he his policy seemed to be. So I just wanted to make that clarification. But as to your point, and I know we need to get uh, finished, finish up. But I wanted to make this point so that, you know, I agree that Joe Biden is not a policy guy. Joe Biden is first and foremost, a politician. He's been a politician for longer than, than, than most of us have been alive, you know, and as a political guy, I think his instinct is I, I mean, he has certain, I think, basic beliefs. It's not like he would become a, you know, a conservative Republican. Right. But he has a lot of ideological flexibility. And so I think he sees where his party is and he shifts to meet them there. And you can call that disingenuous if you want, or you can say, well, what's the role of a politician? Is the politician to say, here is where I am and I will not move? Or is the role of a politician to say, well, what do the people want and how can I help them achieve that? And I think you can make a good case for both types of political leaders. Certainly Bernie's in one of those camps and Joe Biden's in the other camp and so you know you can call it flip flopping or you know or the politics of you know sort of political convenience but when you start to think about well what should our politicians do and if you believe they should reflect the views and the needs of what the public at that point in time feel well then you would expect politicians to change over time like Joe Biden has so uh, anyway yeah. i just wanted to i just wanted to point that out you know certainly and uh, We'll definitely have more to say about Joe Biden on the uh on, on the midweek show and we can we can talk about vice presidential picks and uh and maybe Bernie and how much Bernie has changed the Democratic Party. And I think there are some important points to make about that, but we will leave that for the uh for the midweek show. But before we go, you know, everything we've talked about, Kristen, has been so incredibly for the most part, just depressing and I don't I don't know about you, but in just literally in just preparing for this week's show. I just felt just clenched up and, you know, just a physical reaction to having to just immerse myself in just such dismal and depressing kind of stuff. And so I thought maybe we could end with something a little different, you know, something maybe a little more positive if you're, if you're up for that. I am. Of course I'm up for that. I love positive. Well, you know, so, so my positive thing that I want to end on is is a recommendation And uh, uh, my recommendation is going to be completely non-political. I have sort of, in the last few weeks between the coronavirus and the sort of uh, family medical awfulness, uh, have sort of taken a little bit of refuge in, of all things, uh, YouTube knife review videos, which is, yeah, (laughs) there's this guy, Nick Shabazz, who I, I have come to just Love. He's on Patreon. I I pledged. I I just pledged my support last week because I. That's how much I like. I appreciate what he's doing. You know, fellow Patreon person. But he's 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 funny. He does reviews with great skill and humor, and he puts. You can almost feel sort of like the care and the love and he puts into it. And just getting that at like a ten to fifteen minute shop or something that's totally unpolitical. It's just been such a relief, such a respite, and and I love. I love Nick Shabazz and, I, and maybe there are some listeners who, who are fellow Nick Shabazz people. It's not like this weird kind of like machetes to kill people with. It's like little pocket knives kind of thing. It's just a complete diversion sort of thing. And so if that's at all your inclination or if, you know, you don't carry a knife and really you should, come on, carry a knife. Um, but, you know, not a big scary thing. But anyway, check out Nick Shabazz on YouTube. He's, he's, a, he's a great guy. And I'll put a link there in the uh, in the show notes.
1: Yeah, so I guess do I have time for a recommendation? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I I have a recommendation, and and this this does sort of veer from politics. Um, it does have to do with uh the healthcare industry and with technology. But I found it to be um just an an incredible um diversion o- over the last few months, really, because I've just I've really embraced this story. And maybe I'm a little late to the game, but um you know if if we're all going to be home working from home, out of school, out of this, out of that, I was thinking you know, yesterday about what, what we could do to pass the time. And so there's this book and it's, it's, um, I think it's a year or two old already, but I, it, it absolutely captivated me. Um, it's by a former wall street journal writer, um, who did an incredible job investigating Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. If you remember that yeah. whole Silicon Valley, oh my God, um, yeah. yeah, that whole miry <laughs> situation. But, um, so the book was, a, I think it was a New York times bestseller. It's called bad blood secrets and lies in a Silicon Valley startup. And it, Kind of has spun out of control, and it's it's become kind of a cultural phenomenon. This idea of like let's look at something that failed tremendously, and you know it, it ends on a bright and sort of hopeful note. This this huge company fell, um, but there's of course drama, there's intrigue, there's a kind of a true crime aspect to it. Which of course it, we surely we have some true crime fanatics like I am out there who listen to this stuff as, um, and I there's nothing nothing about you know true crime gets me more revved up and, and keeps me more interested than in these ideas of like companies falling and, you know, this, this white collar crime. Oh, yeah. I find that stuff so fascinating. So, you know, again, it's, it's not completely a departure from things like healthcare technology, which is on the forefront of our minds, but it's also, um, if you, you know, it's a big book, um, it's a fabulous book, but if you don't have time to read the whole book or, or, you know, if you're still working from home and, and you're busy, um, there's, it's spun forth an hbo documentary called the inventor which is a, it covers a lot of the same ground and, and there's a podcast actually that was put out by abc called the dropout that's about elizabeth holmes and theranos so anyway if if you if you don't know about her story and, and about the company if you want to get lost in something that's really intriguing i can't recommend this the book the podcast and the documentary enough i i heard watched and, and read all three like within a month span i got so wrapped up in it but again it's it's a diversion and and i i highly recommend it like your knife podcast, or you said it
0: was a youtube show i can't wait to watch well you can actually see the knife yeah (laughs) all right well that that gives us some i guess some good things for people to maybe check out to get their minds off of you know for at least a little bit just the you know serious stuff that's going on but uh That's it for today's show, but we will, on our uh, Patreon supporters bonus show, we'll get much more into the Democratic race and those things we talked about, as well as uh, a bunch of great listener questions we're looking forward to answering. So uh, that will be uh, available. uh, That drops on Wednesdays. And also supporters get ad-free versions of of this show, as well as all kinds of other good stuff. And again, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys to check that all out. And again, remember, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up. And if, you know, being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, hey, I get that, but you'd still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com. And finally, for absolutely no money whatsoever, it really helps us as well If you could subscribe to the show, if you don't already, leave ratings and reviews. And most importantly, if you could share episodes on social media or email, growing our base and getting the word out to more people, that is just hugely, hugely important. All right. And also for great discussions, you know, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. A bunch of good stuff this week on coronavirus, all kinds of interesting conversations and thoughts. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show is produced by Chris Matheny and Michael Baranowski. That's me. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.